welcome to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, this time around, we're going on a special mission. Yes, another one, an extra special mission this time. We're taking a look at the first issue of Weird War Tales number one. Yes, Weird War Tales number one, but this one is from 1997. Into the time war. Yes, before we we get into this issue, though, Rich is going to hit us with a little retroactive history. Okay, once again, whilst listening to previous episodes, mine ears keyed on topics of previous discussion that I decided needed addressing. Two, in fact. One, In Twilight Zone 3's The Last Battle, I was talking about how Colonel Charles Whittlesley of the Lost Battalion had been a pallbearer during the internment of the unknown soldier and how he committed suicide by throwing himself overboard from a vessel at sea soon afterward. Why I never gave dates for said events, I have no idea. The burial of the unknown was on November 11th, 1921, and Whittlesley died November 26th of the same year. B, it was suggested in Weird War Tales 9 that Howard Chaikin may have attended the Joe Kubert School. He did not, as the Kubert School was established in 1976, and by then Chaikin was already drawing. But he had the next best thing. Get a load of this list. His first mentor was Gil Green Lantern Kane, and from there he worked with or around Wally EC Comics Wood, Sid Captain America Shores, Jack Superman Abel, Gray Man-Thing Morrow, and Neil freaking Adams and lived with Al X-Factor Milgram, Walt Thor Simonson, and Bernie Swamp Thing Wrightson. So yeah, don't think he needed the Qbert school. <laughs> yeah, he kind of went to the prototype because uh, I once had a conversation with Rick Veach about how he was the um, he was in the first graduating class of the Qbert school and he's around Chaikin's age. So that group all shares a vibe, I think. But yeah, even though he didn't attend the school, like you said, he had plenty of teachers around. So uh, I will, I'll, the rich is going to work a lot during this episode, people. Because uh, <laughs> he wrote up some, a little, a little profile on this series. We're going to be taking a look at this little 1997 miniseries. Okay. So I'm going to let him give you the lowdown on that. Dive right into it. Title details. DC Vertigo came out with a four-issue miniseries of Weird War Tales in 1997. There are also two one-shots that came out in 2000 and 2010. Our general episode plan is to do a regular special mission about every 10 issues or so, but we also plan to do all six of these what we're calling redeployment issues of Weird War as a professional courtesy. These will come out about one every 20 issues. So buckle up for a more current take on war horror under the DC banner. Now a bit of a warning to the listeners, Uh, Vertigo is the mature branch of DC Comics. As such, there is adult language scattered throughout, especially in this book's second story. We'll clean it up where we can in the synopsis. This is being a family podcast, but there's always so much to be done when posting photos that have dialogue from the issue. So be warned. Moving on, out of curiosity, I crunched the numbers to get a ballpark estimate of how long this show will last. Assuming we release an episode every other week, Road Warrior episodes don't count, and including the three extras just mentioned, that's 23 Weird War episodes annually for 26 total, 124 issues. By my math, we should be good through about 2027, but 
Max has ADHD and is lazy. So we'll see. Hey, we're probably only a year or two away before you could just submit these shows to some algorithm online and just duplicate everything I would say in a script. So, you know, you could just go double time in a, in a bit and I, w- I don't even have to be involved and everybody wins, especially, <laughs> especially you. <laughs> yeah. Um, 2027, that'll be here before we know it, you know, whether or not we'll still have electricity and modern society is something we'll just have to see. We'll probably be living in a weird war tale. One of your favorite types, the post-apocalyptic genre. God forbid. That's not even funny. Man. So <laughs> while we digest that, you know, a little bit of uh, positive thinking. We'll take a little break to ruminate for a podcast promo for another fine show that everyone should be listening to. And when we come back, I'll put Rich to work again with the cover detail. So we'll see you on the other side. (gasps) Stellar Studios presents an Into the Weird and a World on Fire production. Starring in alphabetical order. Brainwave Jr., Fury, Jade, Northwind, Nuclon, Obsidian, The Silver Scarab, The Star Spangled Kid. These are the members of Infinity Inc., the protégés and children of the legendary Justice Society. Created by Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway, and Mike Macklin, their 1980s adventures are chronicled at last by Herman Lowe and Billy Dee, two podcasters with way too much time on their hands, but dedicated to analyzing, glorifying, and sometimes vilifying the stories from the team's first series. So hop in your Star Rocket Racer, switch on the radio, and let's rediscover the Earth 2 we'd all like to go back to. Star Rocket Radio. An Infinity Inc. podcast soaring through the Pottersphere since September 2021. And we are back. So, as we mentioned, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number one from 1997. And Rich is ready to go with the cover detail. Price is $2.50. So when you're used to saying 15 cents, 20 cents, 25 cents, all of a sudden saying $2.50, it's like a holy crap. Art is by Glenn Fabry. Weird War Tales is stacked in a box on the cover. War Tales is in the classic military stenciling, while Weird is in a different, weird, odd font, with the letters varying between lowercase and capital. Six American GIs are in the jungle under an orange sky, crowding behind what presumes to be a Viet Cong prisoner. He's barefoot and crouched with his hands behind his head, but his face is that of a demon. Horns are sprouting out of his head, his eyes are yellow and red, his ears are pointed, he has massive fangs, and an extremely elongated tongue is twisting out of his mouth. The closest GI to him has a look on his face like, uh uh-oh. Cover date is June 1997, on sale date April 16th, 1997. Killjoy lunging right into the fore. The rifle, the uh uh-oh soldier to the right of the demon VC is holding, is jacked 
up. There's no front sight. The magazine well is empty and the pistol grip looks like a magazine. This is actually looks like the toy rifle Mattel would have put out. That's a derogatory comment used early in the war by the grunts when comparing their new flimsy M16s to their sturdy tried and trusted M14s. Yeah, well, even Glenn Fabry, who's known for photorealistic stuff, probably just cranked out something to to get the cover finished. I mean, that man was working a lot in the 90s, uh, did every cover for Preacher. He was just a cover machine, so I can forgive him, I guess, but, you know, he should know better. He should know one day Rich Fulham's going to take a look at this cover and it's going to be hell to pay. So me not having your attention to detail, I'll, I'll give my comments and commendations here. I thought it was great work by Fabry terrible work by whoever designed the new logo, even if I wasn't comparing it to the infinitely more glorious logo of the classic series, I'd find this one to be lazy. I, I can smell my own kind and, unin- and and uninspiring, which I am absolutely not, as everyone knows. The prisoners, I, I don't know, I don't want to move on from the logo just yet. That, that logo just <laughs> it, it, it just really looks like something that was whipped up in five minutes. Like, ooh, we're gonna do alternate lower and uppercase for weird. Get it? And then it just it looks like a stamp, and I get that. They were going for some like military issue stamp or whatever, but it's just boring looking. And really, you had a logo you could have used. You own it. Just just reuse the original logo. This it just reeks of 90s edginess, which makes sense. But looking back on it now, I'm like, you could have used the cool logo. What the heck is this thing? Yeah, well, so. get used to it. They only go back to the classic logo for the 2010 one shots. They're going to be seeing this one, you know, four more times after this. Yeah, it just, it took a while for them to realize, but at least they got there. Uh, that That's good news. So the prisoners- This guy who named Max was complaining. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they could feel it. They could feel it, man. You know, like, so the, the prisoners' um demon face, I thought was, it seemed like to me, like a nice comment on the previous generation of war comics, uh, somewhat racist depictions of Asians in, in comics. Intentional or not, I thought Fabry's art leaned in that direction in an almost meta commentary kind of way like you look back in 40s comics people the comics that were coming out during the war and even leading up to the war yeah and you've got (laughs) villains like the yellow claw and and even into the 70s you still had characters like the mandarin kicking around who's coming back uh in in a major marvel movie right now but i I bet they've i bet they've modernized him a bit (laughs) but yeah i I thought that was a nice touch it's it's a fabry cover i loved it i just had obviously huge issues with the logo so i'll drop the pitchfork and torch and hand it off to rich (laughs) yeah this this is an awesome cover i'm a big fan of fabry's probably comes from what you just said from the fact that he's worked with Garth Ennis on so many projects, Preacher, Hellblazer, The Authority, Thor Vikings, you know, etc. And I'm an even bigger fan of Ennis's. So yeah, this was took me back, as the as the saying goes. Yeah, you can you can hardly do wrong putting Fabry on a cover, in my opinion. He can do a lot of different tones. He's obviously better with horror and extreme stuff or creepy stuff. But like you said, he he did Thor covers. He did the Authority. He he can he can do just about anything, and I'll and I'll pick it up. With the cover aside, and to get me some distance away from the logo, I will lead us off with the first story inside the issue because this series, much like a lot of the issues we've been dealing with in the regular series, does not have a framing sequence. First story is called The Survivor. It's six pages long. It is written by Simon Revelstroke, who the name's not ringing a bell. 
in the heat of recording here for me, but there's art by Richard Corbin, whose name very much rings a bell with me. So we're in for a visual treat here, in my opinion. The synopsis of The Survivor is as follows. World War I, U-boat U-40 traveling on the surface encounters a British survivor in a field of floating wreckage. Hauling him aboard for questioning, the survivor babbles about a giant lobed eye rising and rising, coming to get us, coming to get you. Capitan von Harsch shoots the survivor in the face and tosses the body into the sea. While he mocks the Englishman's weakness and hallucinations, a crewman points out a previously sunken, undiscovered landmass appearing alongside the U-boat. Seeing evidence of habitation, he orders a patrol ashore to secure a base for the Kaiser. There's a strange smell in the air. The crew immediately becomes unnerved. Geometric ruins reminiscent of bunkers are found. There's a sense of timeless strength. Suddenly, red fungi starts flying at the men, and an unearthly moaning fills the air. One after another, the captain's men are engulfed until he is alone. Bullets have no effect. He runs back to the U-40, where a towering fungal being appears. Von Harsch fires the sub's deck gun at it. The sub is immediately destroyed, and the captain is cast into the sea. The next day, Von Harsch is rescued by the British cruiser HMS Hornblower. He's mad, rambling about an island, rising and rising, coming for you. When he pulls a pistol out of his pocket and demands the ship stop, the British captain has no choice but to shoot him and consign his body to the deep. As the ship sails on, there's a strange smell in the air. And then the story ends. And Rich has a little uh, combo Killjoy and History Minute to give us. The crew ashore are carrying MP-40 submachine guns, which weren't developed until 1938. The pistol the British officer uses to shoot Von Harsh looks like a US M1911 Colt 45. It sure isn't the Webley revolver I'd expect him to use. Also, the real U-40 was torpedoed and sunk June 23rd, 1915 off the coast of Scotland. 29 of the crew were lost with only three survivors. Covering all the bases, there was a World War II U-40, which only lasted a month and a half. On October 13, 1939, she struck a mine in the English Channel. 45 of the crew were lost with only three survivors. There is no record of a HMS Hornblower. Richard Corbin reminds me a bit of this guy named John McRae, which might be why I like the art in the story. Wasn't a big fan of towering fungus monster, but I liked the wash, rinse, repeat cycle of opposing sides naval vessels constantly finding it. My favorite panel was page one, panel five, when Von Harsh shoots the British survivor. The way the muzzle flash blanks out his face, <laughs> point blank, man. Yeah, Corbin is is certainly good with um with gore and his his work has a look all its own i mean for for my comments and commendations uh rich corbin is a legend for me and in the industry in general his work appeared frequently in heavy metal magazine that i read when i wasn't old enough to be reading it like a lot of us kids did i think that's probably who they sold most of their copies to. His series Den, D-E-N, was featured in the heavy metal animated movie, which most people know for the soundtrack as much as they do for the movie itself. Corbin recently passed 
in December of 2020 at 80 years of age. And I've always really liked his unique idiosyncratic art. It put everything, as I said, into a world of weirdness all its own at times. There's there's nothing that looks quite like Richard Corbin. I mean, you mentioned John McRae, and I would say that some, yeah, the figural drawings, the approach to anatomy, and even sometimes the the framing of a panel McRae has in common with Corbin, but there's that look, that almost plastic look to people's skin, the lighting, the color, stuff that really shouldn't work, and yet it all comes together when Corbin does it. So I really liked, spoilers, the art in this story, and the story itself I thought was worthy of the classic Weird War Tales series. Art-wise in particular, the final panel on page three really grabbed me, with the Germans wandering into the abstract geometry of the lost island in the mist. And I, I liked the dishonest narration provided by the German officer early on, where he's giving his version of events, but we're seeing what really happened. I really dug the Lovecraftian Easter egg at the end. There's this exclamation. It's just I-A, I-A, I-A. Now it's, I've always pronounced it in my head, ia, ia, ia. And that is a refrain that comes up in a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's work. It's like something the cultists worshiping the elder gods like Cthulhu would chant. And to see that at the end there, it's like, ah, only some people are going to get that, especially in 1997. Yeah, <laughs> well, I've, I've read pretty much all the H.P. Lovecraft stories. So that jumped right out at me and I dug it. I'll say like that fungal monster that you didn't really dig. Uh, you know, Corbin, like I said, he, he worked in heavy metal magazine. He worked in stuff that allowed him to uh, draw like like you warned people about a little more adult themes. So it's like. Yeah, it's kind of like a phallus and something that you left in the toilet, <laughs> you know, towering over them. And there's no way he didn't want to evoke both of those things. He's Rich Corbin, you know, like he, he's going to go there as far as they'll let him. I mean, he hardly ever drew anyone with clothes on. That's why monsters were in a Richard Corbin series or story was to shred everyone's clothing and spread organs around. So, yeah, this is him being really tame. <laughs> There's always so much you can do even even vertigo, apparently. Yeah, I mean, off to a hell of a start here. So I'll I'll, um, let you see if we follow it up with the second story. Okay, next one. Named simply Aries. Seven pages. Written by Brian Azzarello. Marked by James Romberger. Tony B.C. is fresh out of Joliet prison after a three-year sentence for killing a vice lord rival gang member at a liquor store. He was a killer on the inside, too, knocking off whoever needed it. Now he's on his way back to the 60 Trey, a sect of it the, of the disciples, his gang. The sect is named for their street turf they own, 63rd Street. Tony's mom, sons, girlfriend, and homies from the 60 Trey are all there to greet him. Tony and his boys leave the party, and the first thing they do is give him a Mac 10. Even as he drinks and gets <coughs> reacquainted, with his girlfriend, all he can think of is vengeance on the guy who sold him out. When night comes, Tony and three of his boys hop on a car and go looking for Tweety Z, who's at a party only a few blocks away from 60 Trey Turf. The disrespect of partying that close to their turf the day he's released from prison pisses Tony off which was exactly what the Vice Lords wanted to happen. They ride right into an ambush. Tony's boys are blown away in seconds, and Tony staggers off, wounded. He prays for God to save his ass. He just never specifies which God. I'm going to read directly from the 
comic right here. Now, this wasn't no Jesus showed up. Know what I'm saying? I didn't know who he was, but I sure didn't know what. <laughs> it's so hard to clean this up. <laughs> That's a rough job trying to clean up the dialogue. And yeah, guy. this is really, really rough. One of these uh, days I'll learn how to edit in beeps and we can just let fly. Yeah. It's just like, you know, he was the um, excitement going to a drive-by, that special feeling I got when I stuck that shiv in the guts of that Aryan brother, you know, MF, and felt his warm blood trail down my hand. The ringing in my ears when I emptied my Glock into that snitch's nuts down on Racine Avenue. That taste in my mouth when I pulled the trigger on anyone because he's the enemy and it's him or me and it damn well ain't going to be me. He was protecting turf. The reason why we fight for what's ours. He's been around forever and he ain't going away. He's what runs righteously through the veins of every soldier. And I was a soldier. The, <laughs> the, the panel, I, I almost have to like stop and just, you know, go right to my commendations right here. I mean, this panel of Aries, it's just the end. Holy crap. Look, look at the picture on the Facebook page. Eyes ablaze, rats and insects pouring out of his mouth, chains barbed wire dozens of people fighting to the death and fighting to the death in his lap it's a scene out of air out of dante's you can just sit with this and stare at this panel for minutes at a time and it's just like whoa you know it's it's such an unbelievable panel the thing's like a heavy metal album cover man it's it's just wow so anyway uh, going back to the synopsis uh, <laughs> uh aries gives tony bc strength and he turns and opens up on the four vice lords chasing him down and kills them. Just as Tony thinks he's survived, a bullet rips through his head, mortally wounding him. Lying on the ground, he thinks, I did my part, kept things going, know what I'm saying? And now I was getting my reward. I saw him coming for me, blonde bitches on flying horses. And Killjoy, you know, one part of the story says Tony went away for three years, another says four, and actually Max contributes to this also. Uh, you know, Tony sees Ares and then Valkyries. Ares was a Greek god. The Valkyrie are from Norse myth. I and I, that one, actually. <laughs> that's what you're here for. You're here to catch the old stuff. I'm here to catch the modern stuff. So, boom. Allow me to push up my glasses. <laughs> well, you see. Um... <laughs> I mean, since since you did part of your comments, I'll lead off with my C&C here. This was a great way to move the context of World War Tales or Weird War Tales into a modern setting, especially for the book's time of publication. War does not have to be waged by a country's official military forces. It can be on the streets. And like I said, this is 1997. We're talking the era when movies like New Jack City and Juice and all that stuff were right in the cultural zeitgeist. So if you're going to do a modern comic about war, you're going to bring it to the inner city and show how, you know, we're having a war every day in our own country amongst the gangs. It, it, this was this was perfectly timed and really well executed. I was not familiar with this artist at all, but he did an incredible job on this story. I mean, that, that Aries panel you mentioned, like I said, it's album cover worthy. If they did a different color treatment because they were going to be putting it on something other than comic book paper the thing is ready to go so azarello of course is a well-known writer does fine work here and even pulls off the slang narration dialogue without sounding too forced or out of touch at least not to my suburban white kid ears specifically art wise since you took the aries panel which is amazing i'll call out the page layouts in general especially for the first page 
tilted panels, multiple narration boxes, lots of detail and figures in the panels themselves. All of that in another artist's hands would be an unreadable mess. But here, it all adds to and even enforces the feel of the overall story. I need to look more into this artist and see what else they've done. So I'm pretty happy with the follow-up to The Survivor. Uh, Richard Corbin is a hard act to follow, but Ron Berger and Azarello stepped up. I dug it. Yeah, I mean, when I pulled this comic out of the box, I'll be honest, the only name that I recognized from 97 was Azarello. You know, I think he wrote uh, The Losers for, uh, for a while. And then pre- predominantly for me anyway, as uh, he wrote a Sergeant Rock story that Jill Kubert did, uh, Rock in a Hard Place. And he, I, I had Azarello sign my copy of it. Too bad I couldn't get Kubert, but he was gone by then. You know, he, he did a really good job of, of, of capturing um, perhaps like a more modern take of uh, Sergeant Rock and Easy Company. It was in the Hurtgen Forest, I believe it was, November 44, Germany, bloodbath. Yeah, Azarello's got the chops, man. He's not an, a writer I talk about a lot, but it's one of those writers where I realize every story I've read by him, I've really liked. So for some reason, he's not a superstar in my mind, but he's got a perfect batting average with me. So he probably should be a superstar in my mind. So since you covered that one, I'll take the next story. And in fine uh, Max style, it's the shortest one. So I get away with that. This is the Willow Warriors. It's four pages long. It does not feature Val Kilmer, though. It's not that kind of Willow. It's written by Ian Edgington with art by Annex Schanauer. We'll get to that, but this issue is just packed with big name artists, people. Is that Annex or Eric? It's Eric. Yes. Yeah, Eric. Did I say Annex? Yes. Oh, maybe I have Ennis on the brain. Uh, well, we'll leave all that in. That'll be fun. You're welcome. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's fine. Um, the synopsis of the Willow Warriors featuring uh, Ennis or Eric Schanauer is as follows. In feudal Japan, The armies of two shoguns have been slaughtering each other for generations. Only their masters know why anymore. Both armies are perfectly matched, and each day ends in a bloody stalemate. Finally, the frustrated shoguns agree to satisfy their pride in a different way. Each selects a champion, the noblest of men, purest of warriors, hard as rock and cold as mountain snow, to fight on their behalf. Both armies swarm around the two samurai as they assume their battle stance on a small island in a stream. I'm going to have to fight the Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton reference there. Waiting for that moment of vulnerability that will spell their opponent's death. Hours go by and neither samurai moves. Days pass. A week. A month. A season. The two warriors are motionless as mountains. The two armies are now encamped merged into a seamless whole, fascinated at the spectacle before them. Eventually, the shogun's patience wears thin, and they go to investigate. They are stunned to realize both warriors are long dead. So equally matched were they, neither could move without the other knowing his intention. But honor forbade that they stand down, so they died, all for their master's pride. Taking it as a sign of the gods, the shoguns declared peace and bury the warriors where they stood, planting a willow tree seed atop each one. When the trees reached maturity, instead of bowing toward the water as willows usually do, they bowed toward each other. Honor forbade anything less. Now, with that poignant ending, Rich, of course, 
has some killjoy to deliver. Oh, come on, man. I, I got to earn my paycheck here. You know, it's just like, like I've said before, I'd never saw Shogun, but the fact the two samurai stood stock still for months, died on their feet, the bodies didn't fall over and it took that long for the Shoguns to notice. Yeah. But man, the way this is written, it, it sounds like it got lifted right out of Japanese legend, though. This is... Uh, this is a well-written story. I mean, uh, I, I love the mirror image, full-page panel that starts the story of the two armies fighting. Red on black uniforms and black on red ones. And with the exception of the house markings on the banners and the armor, it's like that throughout the story. What's not red or black is peach and orange, maybe a splash yellow. There's no blue or green until the very end. Colorist James Sinclair earned his friggin' paycheck on this one. This thing is gorgeous. Yeah, four pages. It's a, and it's a heck of a heck of a work. For my comments, I'll say it's the futility of war and the pridefulness of those who wage it. These are timeless themes and absolutely perfect choices for inclusion in a Weird War Tales revival series. So far, I am super impressed with this follow-up. I know Shanauer mostly for his amazing work on a series of Wizard of Oz graphic novels. So seeing his lush, detailed work here was a total surprise for me and a definite treat. I mean, every panel is beautifully done naturally. Like you said, even this colorist is right up in a league with Shanauer's art too. Just there's there's no gap there. He can run right with him and it does amazing work. So I'll call out the second panel on the final page. It's a close-up of the frozen champions' faces. And it kind of, as I saw it, it reminded me of that one scene near the end of Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining with uh, Jack Nicholson sitting frozen in the hedge maze. So, you know, that was a nice little uh, invasion in my brain of something completely not related to this story. <laughs> but it, it, that scene literally jumped into my head when I looked at that panel. Spoiler this, alert, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> spoiler alert for like, uh, God, like, is it a nearly 50 year old movie <laughs> but you know how the internet is like there's people i haven't seen the shining you son of a well here here's a tip read the book and then watch the movie and you'll have no idea what's coming because that movie has almost nothing in common with that book <laughs> so hollywood did something different than what the author put down oh good lord i, lo I love them both i love that movie and only a handful of years ago i listened to the book on my long commute I used to have. And I was like, yeah, this is a little different. I, I, I still love that movie, but the book was amazing in its own way. So before we start a Stephen King podcast here, um, Rich will jump us off into the next story. Yeah, I won't lie. I'm, I am really, really glad that I got this one. <laughs> the Tunnel Rats, seven pages written by Gordon Rennie, art by Randy Duke Burke. It's the cover story. Kind of, sort of, not really. A Vietnam vet lights a cigarette in the dark office of his psychiatrist. I know what you're thinking, Doc. Another crazy Nam vet. The vet is hostile, saying he hadn't lost a night's sleep ever since he came home 30 years ago, or even thought about any of the guys he served with. But that was before he got a call from his buddy Gopher. All Gopher had to say was, Coochie, and 30 years vanished. Flashback, 1967. The Iron Triangle, Kuchi District, northwest of Saigon. No matter how many patrols they ran, Charlie just kept popping up and causing trouble. Their tunnels were quickly discovered, and the more the Americans looked, 
nor were they found. So the brass moved the entire civilian population out of the area and initiated Operation Cedar Falls, which turned the district into a free fire zone. Bombs, napalm, Agent Orange, etc. The tunnels were a lot easier to find on that moonscape, and the tunnel rats were introduced. The VC knew how important our body counts were to us, so they, they drag off their dead to mess up our counts, burying them in the tunnels with them. Surrounded by their dead, trapped underground for weeks, being pounded by bombs, anyone would go crazy, especially if the food ran out. Elmer, Gopher, and the vet were exploring a tunnel when they discovered a group of crazed cannibal VC that had been eating their dead to survive. Fresh meat! They attacked, coming right out of the walls. Elmer had no chance, but Gopher and the vet escaped. Later, the Americans returned in force and exterminated every living thing they found, then had the engineers dynamite the tunnel entrances. Back to the present. The vet wonders how deep the tunnels went, how far they went. The VC had women. Maybe they bred and learned to live underground. When Gopher called, he claimed the VC had caught their scent all those years ago and had been digging away for years, looking for them. He'd heard noises under his house. The vet had laughed then, but he wasn't laughing anymore. Gopher vanished. Investigating cops found a huge hole in his basement. And now he was hearing noises underneath his own basement. The vet stubs out his cigarette and tells the doctor to write whatever he wants in his notebook, but he was going to be ready for him. The doctor's notes tell the rest of the tale. Paranoia, fear of subterranean spaces, etc., no proof of his claim of the cannibal VC incident could be found in army records. Recommend suicide watch. Just another Vietnam War nut. But the vet drives home and goes to his basement where two spotlights blaze on the floor. There's a loud scratching noise. The vet is ready with an M16 rifle. Come on! He roars as the smallest hole appears in the floor. Oh, yeah. And is it's like... I'm just, I'm just going to go with all my stuff here. You had to be a special kind of crazy to be a tunnel rat, going underground into the enemy's turf to look for them. Some guys never came out. There's a phenomenal book by uh, Tom Mangold, The Tunnels of Coochie, that came out in 1985. It's all about the tunnel rats. Nowadays, those tunnels are tourist attractions. Operation Cedar Falls was real. The, the Viet Cong, or BC, they were named that because their letters matched up to the NATO phonetic alphabet. Victor Charlie, which almost overnight got shortened to Charlie. In instances when the VC fought well and earned the grunt's respect, it would get changed to Mr. Charles. We've mentioned on the podcast before that Larry Hama was a tunnel rat in Vietnam, and the G.I. Joe character of the same name is based on him. Uh, so, you know, respect, <laughs> obviously. Comments and commendations to lighter on page one, panel two. I actually figured this out on my own before it got explained to you later on. Non gratum anus rodentum, which was a tongue-in-cheek Latin phrase the tunnel rats used as their motto. Not worth a rat's ass. Du Burke's art owns this. Three panels on page two, the, pa the patrol through the swamp, the grunt getting hit, the grenade going off in the tunnel. Page five, the crazed VC lit up by a flashlight. And again, the colorist here, Grant Golish, is the perfect accent to do Burke. This story haunted me the first time I read it in 97. When I reread it, you know, for this, I was just like, uh, yep, yep, there it is. It's uh, hasn't lost anything in all these years. There's no flat tire of this entire issue. I, I got to echo your kudos to the colorist here, especially considering the purposefully limited palette of the scenes. 
These pages are easy to look at and understand, and the colors help enhance the mood where they could just be washing everything out. Again, like we're not using a ton of colors, but everything is still distinct. Everything is still kind of vibrant, really. I'll also point out how the story uses a lot of panels per page in its layouts, and it still reads just fine. Page four, perfect example. All this working together. It's nine panels, only a handful of colors. And it's one of the most gripping pages in the story. This was fantastic stuff. The ending was super creepy too. The race for best, uh, we'll get to that and, you know, final thoughts, but the race for best story in this issue is tight. This one was, <laughs> this one was legitimately chilling. It was like a good horror movie where, you know, cannibal underground people aren't real but you're going to put the lights on in your basement after reading this. You know, it's just going to happen. A huge, huge win at the end here. But I, I love this story. And I wasn't familiar with either of these creators either. So there's more new people I got to look up. So, all right, you can uh, take us to the next segment as well, sir. Okay. There's a little bit on the back, uh, inside back cover. It's called On the Ledge with uh, George Pratt. Pratt did uh, Enemy Ace War Idol in 1990. It's a story of a Vietnam vet visiting uh, Hans von Hammer, Enemy Ace, in a uh, German nursing home. It's set like, right, right after the Vietnam War uh, to talk about the war. It's a really, really good book. And uh, George Pratt has some thoughts, and I shall read them for you. I was 10 years old when the first sensational issue of Weird War Tales hit the stands. Joe Kubert's cover nailed me. The Grim Reaper, covered in full Nazi regalia, brandishing a bayonet, lunging forward on American soldiers who screamed and helplessly fired their Thompsons. We remember that cover. Beneath the image, an official Nazi memo declared, Gefreiter Hans Müller died two days ago, or so he thought. I was hooked. This was a time when just about everything on the stands was pretty eye-catching. Legends like Kubert, Wrightson, Toth, Heath. Glansman, Drucker, Severin, and Adams were doing some of their best work. So why the exuberance over Justin of the War comic? What it boiled down to was the wonderful stories, plural, because the tale was the thing, and Weird War tales offered plenty of them. Someone once wrote that the short story is the hardest story to write. There can be no extraneous material, no asides, just pertinent storytelling. This is true of comics as well. You have this many pages make it work. This is the challenge that Weird War Tales presents, and it inspires best efforts from its creators. That's because the story comes first. The story motivates the art, and the art is in service to the story. When a story demands that something powerful be shown, the artist digs deep for that last ounce of emotion and empathy. I've read the stories in Vertigo's Weird War Tales, and I'm impressed. The stories are solid, well-crafted, diverse. There's old-fashioned bloody pulp material here. Invaders from outer space, homicidal military enthusiasts, monsters from the deep. But there's also something that's all too often conspicuously absent from comics these days. Stories about human values like caring for others, turning the other cheek, as well as stories about war's more subtle scars. From feudal Japan to no man's land to inner city Chicago, Weird War Tales is 13 stories that take a hard look at war. And there's definitely something for everyone in this collection. So here's a challenge. Check out Weird War Tales, and if you like it, keep it afloat. Everyone benefits. You get more bangs for your buck. We, the writers and artists, get a crack at the currently underused short story, a chance to bring some diversity to this business without having to drag in the slap and tickle of superheroes, a chance to get back to storytelling. And yeah, 
Pratt worded it pretty damn well right there. Yeah, that part at the end, just like, how bittersweet. Come on, guys, let's make this happen. Narrator's voice comes in. They didn't make it happen. (laughs) There was no sudden revival of anthology titles or war comics. The slap and tickle of superheroes has, has completely taken over the comic book industry, the movie industry, everything. It's, it's over, Johnny. <laughs> you, you almost see Morgan Freeman go, it didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> However, <laughs> it did not happen. So yeah, a, a great piece by Pratt. I, I loved seeing him reminisce about seeing the cover to issue one and just his, his obvious reverence for the classic series. That was a great little piece. Just, just a nice after dinner meant after those great stories too. So sprinkled through this issue and you're going to take the lead again were at least some ads so we can do our segment where we spotlight some ads from the issues to so take it away. Yeah, this, this was an ad light issue. There were not many to begin with and none of them lunged out at me. I eventually settled on Hard Rock Live presented by Pontiac Sunfire. Oh my god, there's a car I haven't thought about in 30 years. TV's only weekly live music series. Only on VH1. Music first. Certain joke here about the last time MTV played music videos. Guest list premiering Sunday, March 30th. Jewel appearing in April 4-6. Simply Red and Maxwell. 413, Mary Chief and Carpenter and Sean Colvin. 420, Robert Palmer and Cheap Trick. So, yeah, tune in, folks. You better face it, man. You're addicted to love. I would have gone yeah. to see that Robert Palmer show. <laughs> I'm a Cheap Trick fan, man. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that. I'm like, all right. So, I'm, I'm 50 years old. That, that whole lineup, I'm like, I would have seen many of those and been quite happy. So, <laughs> something I probably wouldn't have been happy seeing, though, but I had to spotlight the ad. As you said, pickings were slim, but this is right up my alley of pain. We have a full page ad that has the tagline at the top that says kick back and catch the action tonight and all month on pay-per-view steven seagal and keenan ivory wayans in the glimmer man so you've got this movie poster blue filter on pasted together photos of steven seagal and keenan ivory wayans holding guns trying to look cool it's 1997 steven seagal so the gas tank is running low and you got to pay-per-view this movie. It's Order Now from DirecTV. Yes, they were around in 97. Or your satellite or cable system for the privilege of watching The Glimmer Man with these two guys in it. Now, I said in the script that I was going to look up the trailer to this movie, and I did not. Yeah, yeah. So Because I saw so, that you were going to. I'm like, well, I better be prepared just in case. I, my then, ADHD <laughs> found a way to save me from it. So you share with us what you found. Oh, come on, man. There's, there's nothing to be said. I mean, what, what's this 1997, like a lousy Steven Seagal film? <laughs> Not many other things, except all the artists in that guest list you just read about the music festival. Except all the other Steven Seagal films. <laughs> hey, man, let me try to defend some. Uh, I got to think of some of those three word titles. Hard to Kill was very, um. yeah, I don't know if it was good. I, I liked it. I was a teenager. So, yeah, I'll. I'll drop that one, but I, I should make myself watch at least the trailer for the Glimmer Man because this ad is such a time capsule of 1997. Like pay per view was still a thing. The little picture of the TV is the kind of big projection TV that everyone still had then, with a little cable box on top and pay per view coming all pseudo 3D out of the screen. It's just beautiful to look at, and this movie has to be utterly terrible. Like if I had to pick one for us to watch the next time we. 
get together and there's enough booze, it might be this one. Just there's not see. enough booze, man. Yeah. There's not, why is what? Why is the rum gone? <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about something you could probably kill, Joy, even though we don't know anything about the likely topic. So there's my ad is for 1997's, you know, cinematic masterpiece, The Glimmer Man. So we'll we'll run away from that and get on to our got any last words yes yeah we'll do some last words here and i'll lead off the 1997 miniseries revival has come out of the gate strong art storytelling themes tone everything fit the weird war tales mold perfectly the only negative i have to add is that this issue only makes it even more clear to me that dc had access to talent that would have easily been willing and able to carry the weird war torch well past the time when the market caused it to be canceled in 1983 now it's not necessarily dc's fault as i said that the market was speaking and these books were not selling so it just sucks but other than the logo which i'll i'll leave alone right now that's the only complaint i have this was an incredible issue and those are my last words this was a solid welcome back issue just to piggyback on what you're saying all four stories were worthy but like i said tunnel rats lingered mentally for quite a while the first time i read it obviously it's still my favorite in this issue i'm looking forward to going to issue two next year hopefully sam glansman and joe lansdale do a civil war story that will remind everyone of jonah hex jonah hex someone say jonah hex <laughs> hello <laughs> what, what, what huh well, um, before I go down that trail and distract myself with the Jonah Hex a ranter aside, I'll take us over to the Dead Letter Office, which is quite busy this time around. This is where we take time to mention people who've uh, liked and shared or commented on our stuff out there on the interwebs. And this time around, we're looking at comments on episode 10, which covered Weird War Tales number nine. So on Twitter, we got likes and so forth from Professor Frenzy of the Professor Frenzy Show, Lucretia at Lulu Belzy on Twitter, FP Glasgow, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Days of High Adventure Podcast, Coffee and Comics, both from our buddy Clinton Robison, Prairie Justice from Gordon Tolton. Uh, Prairie Justice, by the way, is a Greg Sanders or Greg Saunders vigilante podcast, which everyone should listen to. Gordon's just amazingly talented. We got the long box of darkness into the weird Doc Strange, you know, also known as Billy Delicious, him and Herman, and, and their great shows that they do, like the All-Star Squadron podcast. We got Slade 33, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Kirk Spencer at Big Five Army on Twitter, the Checkered Pass podcast, who we are good buds with, Iowa's Joe Crawford. And again, for people like me who always heard that wrong on the internet, that's Iowa's, as in Joe Crawford's from Iowa. And he does the 21st Century Boys podcast with his son, where they talk about comics they're reading together. And that's awesome. And we got Hicks, Paul Hicks at Reading Hicks, host of the now rejuvenated waiting for doom podcast because the doom patrol is back on baby season three is here and we got twitter comments from doc strange billy delicious he says good episode guys that letter from gary was ace many thanks for the shout out because you know we take promos and mention shows we like on the weird warriors podcast so uh you know i i thank them back on twitter and over on facebook we got likes and so forth from Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast and from their show account and from our buddy Darren Murphy. And we got some Facebook messages this time. We got an epic one from a guy named Kurt Matilla. 
fantastic podcast, fellas, totally got me into this book. I've been buying back issues and following along. Keep up the great and weird work. We respond back and say, you know, we thank Kurt for the support. We're aiming to do them all, of course. And I mentioned right here, the next issue we're recording is an episode um, covering the 1997 Weird War Tales miniseries. So quite timely, Ace, keeping up with the dead letter office here. And Kurt responds with, whoa, time jump. I'm scrambling to my local comic shop now. Excellent intel. And, uh, you know, I, I fill them in like there's four issues from 97 to one shots. Uh, actually, I don't know which one of us filled them in. This is the show account. That's, so that's me. That's probably you. Yeah. Um, so you <laughs> filled them in and uh, yeah, uh, this is this is how I know it's from you. Out of professionalism, we plan <laughs> to do all six of them too. That's definitely not my voice right there. So Kurt comes back with awesome. You guys are pros again. He's not talking to me, so that makes sense. <laughs> also, your podcast and discussions has made me curious about learning more about World War I aerial combat. What a rabbit hole. I've been picking up back issues of The Unknown Soldier to read the Enemy Ace and Balloon Buster backup stories. Thank you for putting a spotlight on a corner of comics I've never really read or collected until now. Now I chime in and I say, gee, it's usually me corrupting Rich into spending too much money on comics. Now he's turned around and done it to someone else. Hey, the good news is there's no escape. Glad to have you on board. And don't worry, war comics are awesome. So I'm just, I'm blown away by that. We got somebody not only into weird war tales, but into war comics in general. And it's someone who never really dabbled in them before. To me, right there, it shows us like a success. If that happened one time, I've said, I'd feel like we did our job and it's already happened. So we're good. We can coast from here on out, man. Work's done. Shut it down. <laughs> Shut it down, man. Game's over, man. It was fun, man. Peace out. <laughs> and Gmail messages. Uh, zero, which reminds me, we have a Gmail account. It's weird warriors podcast at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter at weird war pod. And we have a Facebook page of the weird Warriors podcast, which you should check out because rich does a ton of work over there, putting up awesome photos, not just for the current episode, but he goes back and researches, re-listens to our show. He's a glutton for punishment and he loves the sound of his own voice. Much like I, sure I do. Has, sure as hell is in the sound of your voice. Yeah. 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 I mean, like you, there's no accounting for taste, but it adds more photos to even previous episodes. I mean, he's really putting a ton of content on the Facebook page over there for people and they're starting to starting to notice it. So I, I think that's cool. It's, it's honestly one of the, one of the coolest things I've seen for a show is the work that Rich does on the Facebook page. You know, I'll say that now while we're recording, cause I'm not going to tear that. me down. Once, once <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to be that nice to him when the mics are off. And you know, with all that, that's the dead letter office. And I will let Rich cue you in on what's next. Okay. Next episode back to the originals. Weird War Tales 15. After all, it's what you're here for. Knights of the Air. Knights on the Ground. Jack Sparrow. Tune in or be square. Yeah, right on. Jack Sparrow, man. We're, we're, we're there. I'm, I'm loving it. Oh, my God. You'll I totally, you will totally get what we're talking about <laughs> next, <laughs> next episode. All right. So that's what's coming up next. And for now, we've reached the end of this latest special mission covering the redeployment of Weird War Tales from the late 90s. And until next time, until we meet Jack Sparrow next episode, I'm Max. I'm Rich. We are the Weird Warriors. This is the Weird Warriors podcast. And we promise to make war no more.